Ryan Crane is a communications manager at the Project for Public Spaces, so he knows a lot about placemaking. He writes that his primary goal in his work is to make cities more enjoyable, accessible, and socially engaging for people. Brendan has also worked as program coordinator for the Institute for Urban Design, where he developed the outreach strategy for the By the City, For the City crowdsourced design competition and New York City's first ever Urban Design Week Festival. Um, he also blogs and writes all kinds of great things. Welcome, Brendan. Thank you. <laughs> so nice why don't we get on, uh, tell us about lighter, quicker, cheaper, um, and so, so we have a foundation on, on which to continue the conversation. Sounds good. Thank you. Sure. Hi, everybody. Um, so as, as Fran mentioned, I'm with the Project for Public Spaces, and uh, I work a lot on sort of crafting the messaging around what we do. We do a lot of placemaking work, and a big part of that is this lighter, quicker, cheaper style of um, strategy. So I'm going to focus my introduction today kind of on the concepts behind that strategy, uh, and how that fits into the larger process of placemaking and community revitalization. And then at the end, I think we'll have lots of time to talk about different examples at all sorts of various scales, because I know everyone's kind of coming at this from very different places, both uh, philosophically and physically. We've got small towns and cities and all sorts, um, everything in between. Um, so we'll have lots of time to talk about different types of interventions to give you some ideas. Uh, but I know a lot of you already come came prepared with long lists, so uh, let's get to it. Um, so the, the contemporary concept of lighter, quicker, cheaper is really something that has evolved in recent years kind of as a reaction to what we've seen in urban planning over the last half century or so. Uh, so historically, public spaces evolved slowly over time, and um, it's kind of organic. And as a result, they were really flexible, and you could do a lot of different things with them. So, uh, you know, for instance, you would use a street for, you know, that streets are a great example of, of how this has evolved, where it used to be you'd use a street for commerce and for markets and festivals and play and socialization, uh, but today, you know, streets are, are mainly thought of as transportation thoroughfares, and that's kind of it. Um, so that's, of course, you know, the result of this long period where we've moved more towards kind of a top-down, project-driven model uh, in how we plan our communities. And that's something that you can really see in all sorts of spaces, uh, in all different types of communities. So lighter, quicker, cheaper, I think, uh, can really be thought of as a reaction to that condition. So when we talk about lighter, quicker, cheaper strategies, we're really talking about the planning and the use of public spaces from the bottom up. Uh, so it's things that involve lots of people in, in shaping a space and in making decisions within a community. And as a result of that, we like to think of lighter, quicker, cheaper as a key part of the process of kind of the engagement of a community. Uh, and it's something that you're, you're learning from continuously and sort of building a larger strategy around. So there's a, there's a social purpose driving a lot of this stuff, and it's much more than just, you know, an aesthetic movement. Um, so many of you uh, probably read Robert Putnam's book, um, Bowling Alone, or at least maybe heard of it, uh, or the the, his main idea that he's talking about is sort of the decline of social capital and how that is directly related to how our public realm has really become much more privatized. And this idea that he puts forth is that, you know, as we followed this more top-down approach, we've seen the places where we live increasingly kind of turn inward to the private home, the private car, the private lawn. Uh, and our public realm, both the physical fabric of it and also the social fabric has suffered as a result. 
And that's really bad for our health, both our physical health and our mental health, and it's bad for our communities in a whole host of ways. You know, Putnam cites a lot of statistics that show that people have less trust uh, in their communities. They have fewer people that they feel they can confide in, uh, and that's got a lot of really negative effects. Um, so to counter that, you know, uh, there's a new white paper that just came out of MIT uh, recently that I would strongly recommend everybody take a look at. It's called Places in the Making, and this report kind of looks at a, several case studies. I think it's about 10 case studies. It's a variety of different placemaking projects, most of which involve some lighter, quicker, cheaper elements and strategies. And the paper really comes to this conclusion that it's the development of social infrastructure in a community through the process of shaping places that's really kind of the core value of that placemaking process. And there's a great quote that I'll read here from the report. Uh, they write that, the, the relationships that grow out of the making are equal to, if not more important, than the places that result. So with that in mind, uh, I kind of wanted to look at each of the three aspects of that lighter, quicker, cheaper mantra and talk about that process specifically as a social connector and kind of consider a bit uh, about how to start thinking about doing this kind of stuff in your community. <clears throat> so when we talk about doing things that are lighter, uh, in this context, what do we mean? Um, I think the key point to highlight here is really that you know, money is not the primary constraint that you want to have in mind when you're thinking about where to start with this type of thing. That's often where we go to first is what's the budget? Where's the funding coming from? Um, and that's important, but uh, you know, if you're considering a variety of different ideas for how to approach a project with lighter, quicker, cheaper, the first thing you actually want to think about is who's going to be involved and what are the soft resources that we have available through that network. So that's time, it's talent, it's relationships, personal connections, connections to institutions. Um, and there's actually there's a great uh, lighter, quicker, cheaper initiative in Detroit called the Alley Project where this group of neighbors has sort of transformed a back alley in the southwest area of Detroit into a community art space. And I saw the founder, Eric Howard, speak this past spring about the thinking behind that project and behind the work that they're doing. And he had a really great quote that I think kind of gets really to the heart of this idea that I'm talking about. He said that you should think about your community as a whole network of connections and each connection being a line between two people. And whenever you see the densest overlap between those lines, that's where you start working to engage people and build community. And I think his point here uh, is really that a lot of the value that comes out of a lighter, quicker, cheaper project comes from the relationships that are built uh, as people are working together on you know, whatever project it is you decide to take on, more so than value being money, right? So it's more about those social relationships. And that leads us into the idea of quick wins, which Fran mentioned, um, or you know, the quicker part of the Q and LQC. Uh, so again, you know, thinking about this as part of a longer-term effort, lighter, quicker, cheaper initiatives are really a way to do some very visible, accessible things quickly so that people in your community can really see changes happening and participate in them if they feel that they want to get involved. Uh, so it gives people... Oh, yep. I don't mean to interrupt you, but I just want, I think somebody is not on mute or a couple people, and so it's a little rough to hear you. So um, for everybody who is on this call, if you could please press star six. 
it's going to be a lot easier for everybody to hear Brent. Thanks a lot. Go ahead, Brent. Sorry. Okay. Um, I love how every time you do that, you can hear all the little blips. <laughs> exactly. Um, you don't hear the little voice that comes to you to say that you've gone on mute. It's okay. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so um, I think what I was saying is you, know, you want to kind of – one of the, the benefits of this lighter, quicker, cheaper strategy is that um, you know, you're, you're, you're doing things now and you're doing them quickly and you're doing it in a way that is accessible for people to participate. Uh, and, a, you know, a lot of times I think it's really tough for people to visualize what change might look like. Uh, you know, if you walk past a vacant lot a million times, it kind of becomes invisible. Uh, if, you know, if you never go down to Main Street, it becomes invisible, even though in reality you know it's, it's a problem that needs to be addressed. Um, you might just kind of – people have trouble kind of visualizing what that change is going to look like. And lighter, quicker, cheaper projects kind of – they create this sense of movement. Uh, and that's key is that they can kind of get people excited about what you're doing now and that they can see – this is happening. This isn't something that we're talking about that's going to happen in a year or five years or 20 years. This is something that's happening now, and I can actually get involved in this. Um, so the idea, again, is that you're building this network of engaged people within your community. And also, you know, it's important to consider that as a tool, as a soft resource in and of itself over time, especially if your goal ultimately is to make some kind of significant or permanent changes that are going to require you know, say the support of local elected officials or if you're going to need to get this past the town board or the city council or what have you or the county or some sort of government institution or agency, um, doing lighter, quicker, cheaper stuff and kind of building a movement slowly through that over time helps you, uh, helps to arm you kind of with this body of support from people. Uh, and just one example I wanted to talk about in detail, I think one of my favorite examples that illustrates this point really clearly uh comes from um, my own corner of the world. I live in Queens uh, here in New York, and uh, there's a neighborhood near mine called Jackson Heights. It's a very dense um, neighborhood, very heavily built up. Uh, and so they have very little public space, but they have a lot of people. And there's just one small park, really. It's called Travers Park. And there were some people within the community uh, several years ago who said, you know, we wanted to do something to, to create more space for socialization and for play and just more public space in this neighborhood um, for building this community. And they decided they wanted to do an open streets intervention, which is um, that's something that's a big movement within the sort of under the lighter, quicker, cheaper umbrella. And so they the first year pitched it as a one-weekend event. So we're going to close the street for one weekend, and people are going to come and play in the street. It's right next to the park, so the park activity will kind of spill out into the streets one block. And they were able to convince people that that was a good idea, and so they did it. Parents came, kids came, these families came, and they used the space. They had a great time. The next year, what they decided to do was they said, well, what if we did it several weekends? What if we did a whole series of weekends? And because people had participated the year before and they saw this in action and they could really not just visualize it in, in, in a philosophical sense, but they could remember what it was like and how much fun they had, they were able to build the support to do this for several weekends. So then the next summer came along and they've, built, they've continued to kind of build up the support for this, what they're doing. They said, well, what if we close this, that block for the whole summer? And there was resistance. People were Some people in the neighborhood were worried about losing parking or what have you. There were all sorts of different concerns, but 
they had this group of people who were really invested in what was happening. And so they were able to go to the community board meeting with all these kids and families and say, you know, there's support for this. People are excited about this, and people want to see it happen. And that was really key. And now they're actually, um, one of the most exciting things is they're actually permanently going to be closing that block and basically almost doubling the size of that park in a really public space starved area. And I think that illustrates really well how you can kind of build up over time and learn each year and pull more people in or, you know, each week, however, whatever your timeline is. But they really were kind of building each time up of what they did the last time and learning as they went along. And they were able to achieve stuff in the long term that they probably never would have been able to in the short term. So last but not least, um, we have the cheaper aspect of lighter, quicker, cheaper. And when you're doing something LQC style, um, I think it's important to approach the process as kind of a learning opportunity and to think about this as an experiment. So when you're working in a public space, for instance, you use LQC tactics to test out lots of different activities and uses and to kind of learn from what people in the surrounding community respond to. So you use movable tables and chairs to see where people like to sit, and you program different events, and you see what people show up for and what they want to participate in, um, and you kind of pay attention to how uh, people use different amenities within a space or interact in different ways. Uh, and I think, you know, that translates well even if you're not rooted to a specific place. You know, if you're looking at doing a series of different interventions within a community at different places or even doing something online, uh, you want to really always be watching and learning from the behavior of people who are participating because um, lighter, quicker, cheaper projects are ultimately they're kind of a way, they're a type of research in a way. They're a way to find out what works and what doesn't in a fast, iterative way so that when the time comes for more capital-intensive stuff, once you've kind of built that network of support, um, you're armed with real knowledge about the needs of your community based on what people have actually demonstrated to you through their behavior and their participation. So I know a few folks are going to be sharing some stories, and I know we've got a lot of great questions to get to. Um, so I just want to wrap up really quick with kind of a summary uh, for those of you who are wrestling with that question of sort of where to start. Um, so the main thing to consider at the start of this, of kind of deciding what you're going to do, I think, is is that social network that exists in the core group of people who you know are going to be involved in your project, even if that's just you or if that's you and one friend. Um, but, you know, you want to look at who's, who's definitely at the table and what soft resources do we have through this network, not money. What do we have other than money? Um, so essentially, you know, what can we do with who we have right now? And that, that includes, you know, identifying people maybe who should be involved but aren't yet uh, and kind of figuring out how you can get to them through the network that you do have. If you want to involve various organizations or institutions from around the community, pull in partners. It's great to build partnerships through stuff like this. Um, and then, you know, the other two factors to think about up front, really, uh, are first, what's going to be the easiest way for you to get started? Uh, and then how might the various things you're considering kind of fit into a larger process so that even if an initial intervention is small, you know that you're learning from it and you're building off of it, um, so I think, you know, there's a great, there's that famous quote from Thomas Edison that I think applies really well here where he invented the light bulb and someone asked him, you know, you failed so many times trying to find something that worked. And he said, I haven't failed. I just found 10,000 ways that didn't work. <laughs> so 
So um, I think, you know, the important thing is really to do something right now with the people you have and just get the ball rolling with the knowledge that you're going to be learning and you're going to be, even if something really, you try something that just does not work, um, you're learning from that experience. So now you know something that doesn't work. You move on to the next thing. You learn from that. Um, so that's that's sort of my, my introduction to Lighter, Quicker, Cheaper. Uh, and now, Fran, I don't know if you want to kind of move us into the the so, show and tell. <laughs> I, I certainly will. I, um, this is terrific. Thank you so much. And, yes. and thank you for letting letting us know that we can experiment. And Absolutely. And check out what works and what doesn't work. And what what I like to just kind of again um, to get us into this concrete mode. Uh, we have two librarians that that have, are willing to just take a minute or two to talk about their projects um, in libraries. There's Mary Lou, um, Caroline, and uh, Jen Stencil. So I'm going to off invite them to come off mute by pressing star six, and everybody else, if they have not muted, should be on mute, which again is star six. So star six gets you both on and off mute. Um, so everybody but Mary Lou and Jen, if you can go on mute. And Mary Lou, are you with us? I am with you. Yes. Well, um, so I, I just, I, I love your story, and why don't you uh, go ahead and share it with us, what, what you did in... Um, uh, what's your town again? It's it's Walt Hill, New York, a little hamlet in the Hudson Valley area of New York. Um, our service area is about uh, seven thousand people, so uh, we're small but we're mighty, and um, size really doesn't matter. Uh, I I wanted to share a, a very briefly a, a, a experiment that we did along the lines of um, what Brendan was just discussing. Um, I had a great opportunity last April to participate in the Project for Public Spaces Leadership Council event in Detroit and sat in a room with 300 people that thought the way I did, and uh, it was fantastic. But one thing I noticed was we were, like, the only library that was represented, and I've always felt uh, that libraries have a unique opportunity. There's there's 17,000 of us in, in the country, more than McDonald's. Um, and a lot of us are located in downtown areas, and we have a lot of the same criteria as a downtown um, anchor business uh, where we have repeat visitation by families and children every week. Um, and we should take more advantage of that. So after this, coming off of this high from this um, PPS event, I went home and I, I walked the property of the library, and I spoke with a lot of people outside. I asked a lot of questions. And my most important question was, you know, we have this big, beautiful front lawn, and almost no one sits on it. And so I asked a lot of questions of the people that were passing by, and, um, you know, we have this beautiful, small, historic building. It's about 4,000 square feet, um, and it sits at the end of a, about a 27,000-square-foot lawn. So it's a substantial green space in the middle of this, this small downtown. And uh, basically what we ended up finding out from talking with a lot of the people in the area, when I would ask moms with their kids, you know, how come you don't come onto the lawn and play and hang out? And there's a, um, there was a fence, there is a fence around that, that borders the lawn, and it's just a, a concrete pylon and steel pole fence. And even though you can hop over it, 
you know, it's it forms a barrier, and that's what one of the the uh, couple of the moms actually told me. And we feel like we can't come in because of the barrier there of the fence, and you know, we're not supposed to jump over things and enter into the lawn. Um, and so we had a lot of these conversations, and then um, I finally I started compiling the information and um, decided to turn the library inside out. And the way I was going to do that was to um, show people, you know, invite people onto our lawn and to hang out and gather and meet people and play, talk, read, whatever they wanted to do. So very simply, in the, the lighter, quicker, cheaper way, we took down some of the steel poles that connected the concrete bar um, uh, pylons and put little signs at each open space that, that actually said, please relax and enjoy our front lawn. And uh, people told us, well, isn't that interesting? Because usually you see signs and they tell you to keep off or stay away or, you know, beware. But here we were inviting people to come in. And then we went and purchased. Uh, a dozen multicolored uh, plastic Adirondack chairs. I'm sure you've seen them all over the place. They were very popular this summer. And they they just livened up the front lawn. And so, we, you know, we took down the barrier. We put up a sign inviting people or put up several signs. And then we put all these chairs around. And the total cost of this was under $250. And I will tell you that, for the entire summer, all the, the beautiful months of, of that we have this year, the front lawn was alive. People were playing. They were they were playing music. They had frisbees out. They they were hanging out with their kids. They were running. They were laughing. They were having a great time. And all summer long, we heard, you know, it's so exciting to see what the library is doing. And the fact of the matter is, is we've been doing this all along, except we've been doing it behind closed doors, behind the walls, and no one really saw, unless you went in, you know, all the great things we were doing. So in a, in a very quick and simple and, and inexpensive way, we invited people to see what we were doing. We invited them on our lawn. We invited them to have a great time. And as a consequence, we, we built great community. We have more supporters. And when we go, you know, at some point later on to possibly look at a larger space or create a larger um, addition to the building, people can justify that. They can see that um, they saw what was going on. As Brendan said, it's tough for people to visualize what change looks like, and this is what change looks like, and, and we're able to show it. <laughs> Great story, um, Mary Lou. It sounds like uh, things are are really hopping there. Do you do you feel that people more people are coming to the library, having felt so welcomed onto the lawn in the summer? Maybe. Absolutely, absolutely. They because they feel welcomed, and uh, and before there was a barrier, and you know whether it's real or imagined. It is what it is, and and I think to ask around, and you know, when you have a challenge, ask people what they think would would work to change things. They come up with these great ideas because you know they're experiencing it as well, and you're looking at it every day. Sometimes it's easier to ask outside of your your um, your core group there to find out what pe what is stopping people from gathering and and uh, and having fun in a particular space. Thank you so much, Mary Lou. That's it's an inspiring story, and I want to get to um, one more story uh, before we get to the questions because Jen Stencil um, from Ohio also 
uh, kind of opened up um, a library and uh, and an outdoor space. Jen, are you with us? I'm here. Can you hear me? Yeah. So go ahead oh, and, and uh, quickly tell us your story. Okay. Um, well, again, uh, being in a library setting or a nonprofit setting, as you know, our resources are slim. But um, there is a quote out there that says, never let the lack of resources be your excuse not to act. And um, so that's sort of what I have in the back of my mind. And I discovered Nina Simon. She's the executive director of the Museum of Art and History at Santa Cruz. And she does a lot with um, participatory spaces. And she wrote a book called The Participatory Museum. She got me hooked on pps.org. And, um, and that's how I started coming across this recreating spaces to work with what you have. And then I also follow um, Candy Chang. I don't know if uh, you all are familiar with the Before I Die project, um, but I came across her and how she's using um, public space places to um, use them differently and, and get people together. So our issue was, of course, we um, couldn't add on to our building. We um, had an underused, underutilized reading garden space. It was under-maintained simply because our budget was being used to cut the grass, and that was simply it. And then we were trying to do more programming with STEM, explore playing, nature playing, tinkering. And so somehow it just came to, hey, let's do, let's work with our garden space, let's do a sensory garden space, and let's put them in containers. And so it took about three years to get approval from um, the library to do this. And what we, first we started with borrowed or repurposed or donations of pots and gardening tools and plants and time and expertise. And a large part of that came from our garden club, which of course they're users of the library. And a patron just so happened to be a master landscape architect. Now, mind you, I, can, I kill cactus, so you don't want me anywhere near a, a garden. But I used um, who I knew in the community, so we borrowed, um, again, all this, all this. We just borrowed it, and we planted it, and we set it outside, and it just changed the landscape. And now people were starting to come outside and use the space. And, again, in northeast Ohio, you only have three good months but people were going out there and using the space, and we started taking our programs out there. We had the mayor read in the garden. We, um, I brought my water table that my kids no longer used. We used that art easel that we have just in our supplies that we use here. Everything, we just kind of dragged it outside and, and let it be a play space. So now we are in our third year. Um, because I had that year to take pictures and document, the master gardeners came and said, we'll give you $1,000 to make this more professional looking. So um, because that first year, I swear, we probably used less than $50. So to come in with $1,000 and to do it right was wonderful. So again, the master gardeners came in. They want to work with us next year. Um, and uh, because they feel it's so appealing, because we are a library, we're free, we have great hours, we're open to all, we can appeal to so many uh, folks that you don't have to have uh, expertise in gardening. Um, people who come here for meeting spaces, sometimes if our meeting rooms are used, they'll just take it outside, they'll have a meeting out in the garden. Um, we have parties and so on and so forth. That's great. And, and Janet, it seems like you just, you took a step, a small step, 
and then people saw what you were doing and wanted to make it even better. Right, exactly. Yep, yep. And we want to do a in. pop-up garden. <laughs> <laughs> well, those are both incredibly inspiring stories. Uh, thank you both so much about really using one, asking people what they want, and looking at space in, in a very new way and making something happen. Um, we, uh, you know, the, the, I was so excited to see that we had um, someone from Cape Town, South Africa, um, who is listening to these calls uh, since the, you know, the whole world has been um, looking and, and shedding their light on that country. Jara was kind of, I think, was on the line and then off, and I hear that she might be back on. Jara, are you with us with the call? Jara? Yes. Uh, possibly she is. Uh, she. Let, let me just tell you quickly about one of the initiatives she was on while we see if she is with us. It's called 100 in One Day, um, and it is uh, written up on um, on the our uh, Google Doc already. But what they have done in Cape Town, South Africa, is it's a citizen-driven festival that's happened twice already where cities and, um, and, and I guess this is happening um, all over the world, where on one day all of these cool events that people have come up with happen in their urban spaces. Um, and probably this could happen in rural spaces as well. Jara, are you, are you there to talk about this at all? Yes, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes, yes, I can. It's terrific to have you here. I know that it's quite late there. Um, and again, I want to get to other questions, uh, but one, one of your questions actually was, is how does one design context-sensitive public participation strategies in very diverse and highly fractured communities um, that, you know, allow us to co-author the stories about our neighborhoods? And it seems that you have already done that or experienced it on some level. Can you speak to that? Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's still a question I'm very much sitting with. Um, as like one hundred and one day, um, it brings a lot of different stories together. Um, but um, it's, I think it's still very individual stories as such. Mm. And I think especially in South Africa, um, in a city that's like so has such spatial legacies from apartheid, it's mm -hmm. um, it it is difficult to get everyone in one place or to, to define community in the city itself. So, yeah, I'm, I'm curious if there's other answers to that. Well, and um, so let's see um, if people, there's somebody else, Ken uh, Lynn from uh, Connecticut, also asked about how this lighter, quicker, uh, cheaper approach um, can be used effectively to reach out to neighbors and, and groups that are consistently disconnected or marginalized um, and, and from, for whom engagement is unfamiliar. So please um, come on the Google Doc or, or if you have some thoughts about how you've done that in your town, um, really how does this lighter, quicker, cheaper also bring people together? It sounds like libraries have done it, um, but it, it sounds like there's a lot more that we can, we can do there. Um, before we, um, as you're thinking about that, I want to go back to Brendan, um, because one of the things we talked about is, is how 
people might be able to prioritize. So community leaders might have a, people coming at them with a lot of activities, um, a lot of good ideas, uh, but you have limited resources. How do you prioritize what activity to go after? You know, I think that's where um, that that what I had quoted from Eric Howard of the Alley Project um, is really applicable. Sort of at the when you're deciding what to do, uh, you want to look for opportunities. Since this, as we had discussed, is really kind of a, a process of learning and of and of building social relationships. Um, look for things on your list that you know you'll be able to involve. Uh, a number of strong partners in, things that are going to be attractive to um, other organizations within your community. So if there's a museum or uh, some nonprofits or maybe a progressive city agency that you know would be um, really interested in participating in something, uh, you kind of just want to look for where those connections overlap, where you've got a few people who all might be interested in, in doing something. And if you're trying to prioritize between 20 different things, um, you want to try to find something that's going to allow the most people reasonably. I mean, you don't want to try to get the entire town to show up at one time. That would probably be overwhelming. But, you know, the most people reasonably that you can get involved um, because it is about building those relationships and about building uh, that sense of um, ownership that people can feel in a project. Uh, so I would say, you know, you, you just want to consider um, – you know, look at your list, look at everything together, and trying to figure out how can what what's the thing on here that we can start with that we can do right now uh, that we don't need to to wait too long because you want to take the momentum you whatever momentum you have uh, that also involves the most people and where the intersection is there. Um, you know, start there and just kind of go for it, and then learn uh, as you go, and always keep in mind like there's going to be more to this. We're going to learn from this. Even if it doesn't necessarily work, it's part of a larger process. Great. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to follow that up with another question. Uh, uh, some people came in with something a, a little similar, both from, from Georgia and Florida. They're talking about um, if the local government bureaucracy is just shies away from this kind of crazy stuff that you're talking about, anything new and different that doesn't really conform to, you know, their preset standards and implementation of projects that are, um, you know, controlled by the government, and even sponsors or funders or stakeholders who, you know, can't agree on what should be done. How how do you kind of move forward when there are these forces that are hesitant? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a great quote that I'm going to pull here. Uh, we did an article uh, through PPS earlier this year on um, the idea of uh, sort of thinking lighter, quicker, cheaper for individual people. Like if you're one person and you want to do something, what can you do? And as a result of that, we spoke with uh, a woman who works on a project called Restaurant Day, which comes out of Helsinki in Finland. And I was talking to her about how they kind of got that project started. And it was started very small and has become kind of an international movement, sort of like 101 Day. It was very local, and now it happens in cities all over the world. Um, and we were talking about this idea of, of you know, butting up against traditional uh, governance structures where people are very kind of change and risk-averse. Um, and she, she said the greatest thing. She said, Finland is so full of regulations that people tend to see regulations even where they don't exist. 
Um, so, there's, you know, she said that's been hindering things for a long time, but Restaurant Day has really encouraged people to use their public spaces in a new way. And I think the, the great kernel in there is that um, a lot of times we, there are things that we think we can't do that maybe we, we can actually pull off. Um, so it's important to kind of make sure that what you think you can't do is something you actually can't do. Uh, and if you do butt up against something where you know you can't get around, there's no loophole that you can, you can kind of wiggle through, um, take a step sort of back from what you want to do. Kind of, um, you know, if you're on Chapter 1, go back to the introduction or the foreword. Think about what can we do in a smaller way that could actually uh, help us get it, you know, kind of, in, initiate a quick win, show something works on a smaller scale than what we want to do, uh, to kind of r almost rig it so that you can go then and say, look, we did this smaller version of what we said we wanted to do, um, or this kind of tangential thing. Mm -hmm. uh, now we have proof that people are interested and that there's there's some momentum behind this. Now can we do that thing that you said we couldn't do? <laughs> so that's one way to think about it. I mean, you know, there is a lot of this that happens that um, a lot of the lighter, quicker, cheaper stuff that's happening nowadays is just stuff that people, they don't, they kind of follow that maxim, uh, you know, ask for forgiveness, or it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. So some people just go out and they just do it. They're not asking for permission. Um, that's not obviously always going to work. Uh, some, I mean, you know, a lot of people here have called in as representatives of, organizations that they work for and, you know, within the context of a, a nonprofit or even a, working within a government agency, you might not be able to do that, but that's another kind of way of approaching it. So, if you, and I guess ultimately, if you can't do the thing you want to do that you, you know, that you've identified, find another thing to do, I guess. You know, there's no, there's no one size there's no one answer to this question, but I think just to get back to that initial idea um, that, you know, people tend to see regulations even where they don't exist, start by poking around and seeing if maybe there's a way to, to do what you think you can't do. Mm, great. Thank you. And, you know, there's a, um, another question. I'm not sure if it's related, but it, it has to do with um, what methods have been tried to address more intangible issues like violence or even damaged civic identity. This is somebody from California, Rashonda called in. And I was also thinking of um, Dara's question about how do, you, how do you bring people together that usually don't come together. Um, and maybe Ariana can, can help me with this, but one example that, that I have noted here in Vermont, of all places that happened, was um, an, an area where the, the town and the town's people were very upset that the, the town, the town fathers were actually, couldn't figure it out, um, had public forums about this area where drug dealers were um, congregating, and it was around uh, a train station. And there were a couple public forums because um, the nobody, people stopped going down to this area. And it was a very important downtown um, area. And they came up with an idea of a putting a farmer's market in this smallish alleyway to bring people and foot traffic. And it was not very expensive. It was good for the people locally that uh, wanted to 
sell things at the farmer's market, and, and lo and behold, the drug dealers moved out. And that was just bringing these people in one, one day a week. I'm not sure if, um, uh, Ariana, if you have anything extra to add about that story, but there's, there's something about just going for it and listening, which we also heard from the librarians, that is very profound. Um, yeah, Fran, the, oh, can you hear me? Yes. Please. Hi, this is uh, this is Ariane. I, I work with uh, Fran, um, and yeah, just to build on that, we you know we'll put up a link to some background on that story. But I think again, it was it was out of having that conversation as a community about you know what is the issue and what are some some easier quick wins that we can do, and and um, you know combining you know putting the farmers market this really public event that has really been a community draw and, and really at the heart of that community. To address this particular problem, you know, gave them a lot of confidence to go on and do even bigger projects. And so we'll, uh, unfortunately, their website is down <laughs> right now, but we'll make sure that that resource gets in there for folks who are interested. Great. Thank you so much, Ariana. Um, by the way, speaking of websites, uh, the 100 um, in one day is also a website that I'm sure that we'll, um, we, we do have on the Google Doc. Let me see. Uh, um, another question. This is uh, from a college town. This is a woman who is very grateful. Another woman from Jennifer from Ohio was grateful that um, small towns are part of these conversations. Uh, she says she's a newly elected long-term volunteer in a small college town of less than 2,000 residents and that the town and gown relationships aren't really very strong. Um, she asked if, if anybody or if Brendan has specific ideas for college towns. Um, I'll start off, off, yeah, I would love to hear from everyone kind of about this, but I'll start off with one um, example that I wanted to make sure that I brought up as we were talking about uh, all this later quicker steeper stuff that's happening. Um, there was actually, I don't know if anyone, or I'm sure some of you have heard of uh, the Build a Better Block team, um, and I think when you're talking about a college town, for instance, um, I think this is very true of everyone, and it's a lot of what we talk about at Project for Public Spaces, uh, but especially when you're dealing with college kids, they just want a lot of stuff to do. <laughs> um, so you really you want to try to focus on increasing activities and uses that are available. Um, and if you are dealing with, I know there's probably a number of people who uh, had asked about this, you know, within a small, within the context of a small town, um, you know, what are the different things that you can do? And I think one model that has actually came from cities but has worked really well in small towns and is good at it, at creating the sense that there's a bunch of stuff to do is the Better Block model. Um, and I believe someone from Better Block spoke on one of these Community Matters calls previously, so I won't dwell on it too much. A number of you have probably heard of them, but if you haven't, um, check them out. They They started in Dallas. And they've done, they've taken their model and done it in cities and small towns. They're starting to do more small towns now all over the country. Uh, and the idea that they have is really to take usually a, a kind of underutilized or abandoned even commercial strip, like an old main street with good bones but not a lot of activity, um, and to LQC style uh, so in a temporary lightweight way completely make that space over with volunteers and create kind of, uh, you know, the perfect dream lively street for a day or a weekend. And they often line these up with um, the open streets types initiatives that I had mentioned earlier where you close down a street to, to car traffic. Um, 
So they'll have one block or two blocks along the route. Uh, you can do this. I think this works well within the context of a historic main street in a small town. Um, you have all this, you know, you take vacant storefronts and you kind of fix them up in a quick way and you have uh, artisans or um, craft people who set up temporary shops inside. Uh, you have little cafes or um, little bakeries or something. You have people sitting out on the street and you create, you, know, you get some spray chalk and create a temporary bike lane and you bring up some potted plants. And so you do all these lightweight things uh, and they create, you know, the ideal main street, if only for a, a short period of time. Um, but, you know, it's a great example of something that you can do in any size community uh, that creates this sense that, you know, there's a, there's a sense of excitement around that. And it's something that a lot of different people can participate in making happen yeah. um, in a lot of very creative and different ways. Well, and it's interesting that somebody talked about, yeah, what, what do you do with these suburban spaces where there is no center? You could probably choose a place to do something similar as long as I think it's that organizing and getting people engaged. You know, people say, well, where do you, where do you even start? What are, the, what are the first steps that you take? And, and I, I'm just going to go back to this wonderful 101 day where they're asking what you reminded me. What do you? What is the dream I have for my city? What is the mm -hmm. dream I have for this neighborhood? And then trying to create it in that little space. Yeah. So, so where do you where do you even begin to get people to to do this stuff? Do you begin with with artists, with the town people, or do you just make a a, a guess about who's going to be active and engaged? Um, I think it depends on kind of the scale of the project. So if you were doing something like a better block, that's a bigger thing where you have an opportunity to do a lot of um, preliminary outreach. And part of the process of something like this that's so fun uh, is that you can, you, there's, there's the buildup over time where you're planning the thing and you're building relationships through the, the planning, not just through the event itself. And I think better block um, there's a great story that lines up perfectly. Um, <laughs> there's, I, I spoke with, uh, I interviewed Andrew Howard, who's one of the co-founders of Better Block, for the PPS blog last year. Mm -hmm. And he was talking about how when they started off doing this stuff, you know, they, they were, success meant something specific. It meant 2,000 people came. So they said, wow, 2,000 people came. That's such a great thing. And then they did it in another place, and 5,000 people came. And like, wow, that's so great. You know, we did this, and a lot of people came and liked it. And that was their early metric for success. And now, in the longer term, what they really, uh, what they look at, you know, six months or a year later, is they look back at places where they've done this, and they see, they say, well, it's a success if we can see that people have gotten engaged and have gotten involved. And they've had people who participated in better blocks that then went on to run for local public office and work to change the governance culture in their communities. Um, they've had people who, as a result of what they tried in a light way at a Better Block experiment, um, wound up opening small businesses. Uh, so they tried it out kind of for fun for the Better Block and thought, wow, this could actually work. And they, uh, they became entrepreneurs in their community. Um, so I think that is, you know, those giving people lots of different ways to... Uh, 
to kind of engage with this and to bring their own creativity to the table. To do something that's really open like that is really interesting because lots of different people can get involved and um, you're starting at a point where you're saying, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rope lots of different people into this uh, and see what we can make together. Um, I'd like to, to get back. I mean, you've covered a couple of things because people also talk about economic development and mm -hmm. how do you measure, and it's interesting that it's measuring around engagement. Mm -hmm. How many people can you engage? Can you um, uh, create those relationships? And I, I kind of like to get back to Jara's question, and if, if anyone on the line uh, wants to, to jump in, and talk about any of their experiences of bringing people that usually are discounted, marginalized, or or don't get together and um, uh, talk across the barriers that they've put up for whatever reasons. Um, if if there are some quicker, um, lighter, quicker, cheaper ideas that get people talking across barriers. Anybody want to come on? Shy group. <laughs> just wanted, just you know, wanted to open that up. Or if people had questions about that, um, or or what Jar is doing, it's it's a, it's a very it's a tricky one. And, and it seems to me, maybe this is simplistic, but just creating spaces where more people feel welcome and safe, mm -hmm. some some new relationships are going to mm -hmm. happen. And there's something that um, Mary Lou said earlier that I think is really key here. Uh, you know, a lot of the work that she did on the front end was going out and talking to people. Um, and sometimes that's where you start. If you're like, well, I'm not sure where to start or, you know, who's going to want to be involved, go out within the community that you're in and really just start talking to people um, and find out what it is that they're interested in doing and what they might want to participate in and what they think the needs in their community are. Um, so if you're not exactly sure where to start, start with the, the people that you're trying to reach out to. Um, chances are you already kind of have an idea of what, if, if, you're, if you're asking these questions, you want to do something like this, you have some idea of what the, the challenges are or what you want to be doing. Um, but, you know, the more people that you can kind of rope in at that early stage and kind of shaping the project, um, those are people who are going to have a, a sense of ownership uh, and are going to come out of this process feeling like they have a stake in it um, and are going to want to continue to be involved. And that kind of plays into that whole uh, network and social capital building process that we were talking about a lot. Yeah, I have a question. Yes, go ahead. And can you uh, identify yourself? My name is Daniel from Habitat Humanity Riverside. Okay, welcome, Daniel. Go ahead. Hi. Yeah, um, we um, we joined a couple of coalitions over the past, past couple months, and they wanted they want to throw out some ideas about arts and culture and farmers markets and things like that, right? Mm -hmm. We're at the stage where we have wonderful ideas, but we don't know how to implement them, or at least we don't know who to talk to, or how you know, do we need a fundraise or anything like that? Um, do you guys have examples of like the process of literally having the idea to the actual work? Now, Brenda, do you have like a step one, step two, you know, kind of a top? Really hmm. I think what you would want to do there ultimately, maybe, is to kind of 
uh, if you've talked a lot about ideas and, and goals and what, where you want to get, um, have you had a conversation yet about those, like the soft resources that everyone brings to the table? Or so like to say, like, okay, well, if, if, if we said we're going to do this, this is our, our grocery list. This is our shopping list of the things that we need to make this happen. And now with those of us who are at the table, um, what do we need? And if it's X number of dollars, where can we get that? If it's relationships with the city, who do we know? Um, but I don't know if you've done this yet, but to just kind of um, come up with that that list of like what are the, the key things, the key elements that we need to line up and now that we have that all in front of us, because sometimes you can think about those things and it's like everybody has their own idea of that in their mind and maybe you even talk about it. But the, to go through the process of really writing it out um, and to see everything together there, you can start to kind of divvy up the pieces uh, and say, okay, well, what can, each, what, what can each of us in this group sitting at this table right now take on based on the relationships that we have, the time we have available, the talents that we have um, how can each one of us take a piece of this so that we can use the power of this group uh, to start pushing forward one of these things? Was that helpful? Thanks. Sure. Thank you, Brendan. Like we're we're going to begin to wrap up. I know that there are other questions on the line um, that I hope you all res respond to. Um, one is um, is actually about raising money for community projects, which leads us right into when we meet again on January 9th. It's all about fundraising. We have three very high-level people that can help with grant writing, uh, fundraising, that, that whole piece um, to do this stuff. Um, because I know uh, Jenny from Texas asked about that, and best ways to promote events. I think um, I, I just want to bring in a comment from Peter from um, Massachusetts. Uh, why are community managed projects so, cons projects so consistently geared toward the built environment? I think they are and they aren't. Uh, we have had, when we were talking about play, how much can be done actually online in terms of getting people together and um, sharing ideas. Uh, but I, I think that this is a group that is very interested in getting people physically together as right. well. So I think we probably do lean that way um, a little bit. Can I jump in really quick there? Yes, please, Brendan. Uh, this is one last thing that I'll, I'll mention quickly um, that I thought of when I was kind of looking over the questions before, and I came across that exact question. Uh, and I think there are – there's also – there was another question about, you know, within a rural context when – you're dealing with an area that is very spread out and has no real concentration, um, or I think that works in, in the suburban context that you were talking about too, Fran, earlier. Mm -hmm. um, there are more and more of these platforms that are kind of coming up now, and they're sort of like online bartering or sharing networks. Uh, so one of the ones that I know of is called Oh So We. Um, there's one called Our Goods. Um, these, or you know, I think. A great example of this too. Some cities now are actually starting to have their they have time banks online. And if you haven't heard of a time bank, you should look it up. They're really cool. It's sort of the type of thing where within a given community, you can go on and say, uh, you know, you create the online platform. You say, well, I can offer you know hours of English tutoring, and someone else says, well, I can offer you know X hours of lawn mowing services, and people can do a direct skill exchange, um, and that's a great tool because not only are you addressing a need 
um, you're also giving people reasons to meet each other within possibly a very dispersed community. Um, so that's one thing that you might want to look into if you're dealing with some of those issues. If you want to do something digitally, if you want to try to address something within a very dispersed context, um, those types of bartering and sharing network platforms that are coming up in time banks are a great yeah. tool. We we have some in Vermont that are, are working really well to strengthen communities. I am so sorry that we are out of time, so I am I'm gonna close up now. Brendan, you've been um terrific. Thanks for having me. Thinking about all these um lighter, quicker, cheaper. Um we can do it. Um I hope this has inspired you to just um go for whatever pops into you or your neighborhood's mind about what might be possible. Um, so let's and let's also make most of the wisdom of this crowd. Please look over the Google Doc. Um, add your thoughts, um, questions, answers to um, what is already on that document. It is really for all of us uh, to share our ideas and help make our towns uh, that much stronger through this work. Uh, watch for information on uh, over the next few weeks about CM calls that are coming up. As I said, the next one in the Make It Happen series uh, that is sponsored by the Orton Family Foundation and the Citizens Institute on Rural Design is on fundraising. So mark your calendars for January 9th. We're going to make that call an hour and 15 minutes. And we look forward to seeing you then. Thank you so much. Good luck to you on creating lighter, quicker, cheaper projects in your town, and happy holidays. Bye-bye.